Thanks for praying over this time. Good morning, Edgefield. It's really good to be with you and to uh, preach this morning. It's been a minute. It's been a minute since I have had the opportunity to preach. Um, but when I saw that there was the opportunity to give some opinions on food, I said, sign me up. As I circled this week, months ahead, because I have lots of opinions on food. As my small group knows, if you make the mistake of uh, using margarine instead of butter in chocolate chip cookies, I will know. <laughs> I might say something about it. Th though I don't discriminate on chocolate chip cookies, generally speaking. Um, but serious, in seriousness, today we continue our journey through the letter from Paul. A letter from Paul to the Christians in Corinth, this city in, in what's now southwest peninsula of Greece. And at this point in the letter, as has been the case for the past few weeks, he continues addressing really practical matters that people in the church must have been dealing with, right? He, he's hitting these these bullet points. In recent chapters, Paul has addressed allegiances to different pastors and different preaching styles within the church. And he's addressed lawsuits among Christians. He's talked about marriage and divorce. And now we come to something that might seem really granular. What food is okay to eat? Right. And um, it, because we're talking about food, I want, I want to let you know, I even wore, I wore socks for the occasion. My, my, you can't see them there in the back row, but my socks have like little canned vegetables on them. All right now, so I did what I can. I'm doing my part here, you know. Uh, but this is not going to be a sermon where uh, parents, I'm sad to say, where I encourage your kids to eat their vegetables before dessert. Um, and, and kids, I want to tell you, I would never preach that sermon, okay? <laughs> never. Pastor Worsley? Mm. <laughs> anyway, so this, this topic might seem like real inside baseball, you know, but it gets to the heart of things that all Christians deal with at some point. Namely, are the things that matter to us the things that matter to God, and what do we do when we disagree about those things? So even though the specific issue that the Corinthians were dealing with in the, the, the midway through the first century, even though that's a relic of the past, the same dynamic exists today. And, and so the specific issue that they were dealing with wasn't whether eating certain meat was okay, just you know, the, the act of it, but really it was whether eating the meat was sinful and something to abstain from on the one hand, or if it was allowable and even something to be encouraged on the other hand. Right? And so those are two distinct positions. And these positions, as Paul discusses them and as I'm going to discuss them today, they create a bit of a catch-22, if you're familiar with that term. Why do I say that? Because on the one hand, on any given issue, you might be a part of the group that Paul says has a weak conscience and lacks knowledge. Right? Nobody wants to be a, a weak conscience Christian lacking knowledge. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, if you're part of the group that Paul calls strong, well, his most direct commands in this chapter are for you. Right, so this is what, what you might call like an equal opportunity conviction type sermon. Right, everyone, I hope, walks away from this passage, this 
portion of the letter um, feeling convicted and thinking about how we might orient ourselves towards uh, God's standards in a better way. So let's start by reading the passage, and please, uh, I would love for you to please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. Now, if you don't have a Bible, as Matt mentioned, there's some in the pew in front of you, um, and you can find this passage on page 899. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So let me start by talking about exactly what's happening among members of the church in Corinth. And we get our best hint of this in verse 4, where Paul writes, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. So there's really two key things you need to know about eating meat uh, back in the middle of the first century um, in, in this region. The first thing is that meat was not readily available to everyone. Right? So if you were invited to a place that would likely be serving meat, you, frankly, you'd probably think twice about, about passing up that opportunity. Um, the second thing is that most of the meat sold in the marketplace, it came from sacrificial animals that had been slaughtered at pagan rituals. Okay. Moreover, these, these events, and these events might have been weddings, parties, they were often held in the dining halls of pagan temples. And so, It's in this context that a question arises among the Christians in Corinth. Is it okay to eat food that has explicitly been offered up as sacrifices in pagan rituals? And so I'll lay out the two, there's two primary positions on on this matter. And, And think about, as I'm explaining them, where you think you might have fit in. On the one hand, 
there are Christians who abstain from eating the meat altogether. If they were Jewish Christians, they would have come from an Old Testament tradition that was very clear about what foods are appropriate to eat and how that food should be prepared even. Right? This, these laws that came from God through Moses, I mean, they were super specific about uh, some food. Now, scholars think that most of the Christians that Paul is addressing in this, most of the abstainers, um, that they actually weren't Jewish Christians. They were from Gentile backgrounds. And if they're abstaining, it's probably because they had been a part of those pagan ceremonies prior to their conversion. And so both types of abstainers, they would have had really strong convictions that made it hard, if not impossible, to partake in meals that, that uh, involved this bad meat, right? Their conscience simply wouldn't allow them to enjoy eating that meat and part- participating in that type of fellowship. So those are the abstainers. On the other end of the spectrum are, are those espousing what today we might call a Christian freedom, right? Effectively, their position was, hey, those pagan rituals don't mean anything anyway. There's no power in the food sacrificed to fake gods, Moreover, Christ came to free us, free us from the chains of the old laws. We're free in him, which means we are free to eat whatever we like. Okay, so now I want to say, if you agree with that second group of Corinthians who didn't have a problem eating with the meat associated, you know, to these pagan rituals, here's a little bit of good news. Paul characterizes that group as the strong ones. Right? So there's a little, take some encouragement from that. The, you can also take some encouragement from that. You would have gotten to eat the meat. So if you're somebody like me and you think meat's great, enjoy. Now, if you if you're, were hearing the explanation of those two positions and thinking um, that you agree more with the abstainers, okay, I want you to raise your hand. No, I'm, I'm joking. Don't, <laughs> don't, I, I'm, I don't want to put anybody on the spot. That will come later. But, but I have some news that is a little harder to swallow, pardon the pun. Uh, he doesn't call the, this group the abstainers. He says they have weak conscience. Call them weak of conscience. And so now we have to take a pit stop and kind of define terms a little bit. Because that word conscience is mentioned several times in those verses. So specifically, he talks about how a weak, Paul talks about how a weak conscience can be defiled. And this passage, along with some others in the New Testament, in, in Hebrews, in Romans, it suggests that a conscience can be defiled. It also suggests that a conscience can be strong, that it can be edified or encouraged. So what is it? So there, there's a great little book um, It's by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. It is conveniently called Conscience. Um, And I would certainly recommend it to you. Thank you to Will Harvey for letting me borrow this for a long time. Now others are free to borrow it now that I'm done preaching. Um, But here's how they define conscience. I I think it's useful. They define conscience as your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Okay, your consciousness of what you believe in is right and wrong. Your, your awareness of what you believe is right and wrong. And there are a few things inherent in that definition. Right? 
one of the things inherent in, in that definition is that conscience is unique to you. It can change over time and it can be faulty as measured against God's will. It's unique to you, it can be measured, or, or it can change over time, and it can be faulty as measured against God's will. The unique to you part, that's probably easy to understand, right? I mean, think about the thousands, millions, I don't know, decisions and things that we can disagree about. No two people will come to the, the exact set of conclusions over the course of their life about everything. Right, so in that regard, conscience is unique to you. Also, Christians, we are all on this journey of discovering how holy God is and how depraved man is apart from God. And so our understanding of God's will over time changes. Right, that's how Paul was able to tell a council of chief priests in Jerusalem that he had, quote, lived his life before God in all good conscience up to this day. How can that be possible? How can Paul say that he lived every day in good conscience? Was he saying that he lived the perfect life? No, not at all. He means that as his understanding of what's right and wrong in God's eyes matured over time, that he changed his actions in accordance with that understanding. Right? So he was in good conscience over time. But his day-to-day -day conscience wasn't the final arbiter of what was actually right and wrong, right? That is, that is God's. It's rather what he believed was right and wrong. I also want to make clear today that when, when we talk about conscience and the things that I'm primarily talking about are things we might categorize as disputable, right? But there are some things that for Christians are not disputable. There is one God in three persons, right? Jesus is fully God, fully man, sacrificed, uh, sacrificially died for sinners, was buried, rose again, right? There, these are things that are not in dispute for Christians, right? The things sort of on the, on the, on the table today that I'm talking about are matters not of core Christian belief or even our church's statement of faith, but rather these are the things that can, can become really easily ingrained in our personal set of beliefs about what constitutes Christian living. That's the, that's the universe of things we're talking about today, these disputable matters. And these things are the everyday things that I think can cause kind of like little fissures, right? Little stress fractures, if you will, between Christians within a family or a group of friends or a church like we see in Corinth. And it's when the weak and the strong consciences collide, that's when significant breaks occur. Now, a reality is that very few of us are weak or strong in all things. So if you search long enough, I bet you're gonna find some matters about which you are weak and you're gonna find some matters about which you're strong. But I want to turn to the weak first. I'm going to explore what words Paul has for those of weak conscience, and then we'll turn to some instructions for the strong. If you're a note taker, I'm going to give two warnings for the weak and then two for the strong, and then finish up with two principles um, for all of us. So first, who are the weak? 
Well, in the situation in Corinth, the Christians of weak conscience are the ones I mentioned who are abstaining from eating meat. And I wonder if this is a little counterintuitive to you, right? The weak ones are those who have more rules in place, right? So it, it might be helpful to replace the word weak with oversensitive, right? Instead of thinking about weak conscience, you might replace that word with oversensitive. Oversensitivity in, it, in and of itself might not be a problem, but Paul calls out the origin of this sort of oversensitive orientation. Look, at, look again, if you've got your Bibles open, to verses 4 and 6. In verse 4, Paul states really clearly that as to the eating of food offered to idols, an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Then in verse 6, he states some of these, the core tenets of Christianity, that there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Now, the commands in this chapter that come later, those are for the strong, and we're going to get to those. But don't miss why I've got warnings for the weak today. It's because if you have an oversensitive conscience, it might be a sign that you haven't fully internalized the truths in verses four through six. This could be because you're relatively new to Christianity or because you're less mature in your faith, but whatever the reason, an oversensitive conscience, it lacks the nuance and the judgment that's evident in more mature believers. So th think of it this way. As parents, what do we, what do we usually tell children about strangers? We say, don't talk to them, right? We say, don't talk to strangers. And that is generally a good rule. But what about first responders? They might be strangers. What about a substitute teacher? What about someone who compliments you in a grocery store, right? There are many times when it is perfectly fine to talk to a stranger. But it's much easier to create a blanket rule one that's oversensitive, right? Because young children especially can't yet appreciate all those exceptions and all that nuance, right? Weak conscience is like a stop sign. It's like a stop sign, not a yield sign, right? A stop sign causes you to mash the brakes instead of uh, exercising judgment over the situation. When we're newer in our faith or less developed in our understanding of, of all the things that Christ has freed us from, our sensitivity, it can be dialed up much higher than God may require. So here are the warnings to those with a weak conscience. There's, there's two of them. The first is don't cross the line into legalism. The second warning, don't be judgmental. Right, those, those two things are closely related. Someone try to parse them out. The first warning, that you not cross the line into legalism. If that's a term that's new to you, it's kind of a churchy term. Um, when I say legalism, I mean overemphasizing man-made laws and de-emphasizing faith and trust in God. That's what I mean by legalism. I've heard legalism described as sort of adding like a plus sign after Jesus' name. 
Right? Meaning if someone asked, hey, how can I be saved? If the answer is faith in Jesus plus, right? Whatever comes after that plus, like that's a, that is a, an indicator of legalism. If you think there's a plus sign, how do I, how can I be saved? Faith in Jesus plus donate 10% of your income to the church. Okay, well that, that's, that may be a good thing, but it, it doesn't have any bearing on whether or not you're saved. That's legalism. Paul has very little patience for the legalistic Christians. And, and Jesus himself had little patience for the legalistic religious leaders of the day. Right? They were more interested in this showy adherence to laws than they were the actual, their actual faith and belief in God. There's an example from Jesus' own life that I think is on point as it also involves food. In the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Mark, this time is recounted when Jesus is with his disciples and the Pharisees. That's the, the legalistic group of religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees start to criticize the disciples for eating with unclean hands because at the time they had all sorts of rules and rituals about how to maintain cleanliness and these were based, many of them anyhow, were based on laws that had been handed down for generations since the time of Moses. But not only are the Pharisees judging Jesus' disciples as unclean and not living faithfully, they go a step further and they say that, that the disciples are breaking laws. Let me tell you that Jesus does not hold back. The Pharisees ask him, so why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. And Jesus says to them, you hypocrites. This people, this people meaning the Pharisees, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Later in the same chapter in Mark, Jesus is speaking to the crowd gathered around him and he says really plainly, he says, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And, and thus he declares all food clean. So the, the main point about legalism is this, the food and the man-made traditions around the food, those things don't matter to God, so it shouldn't matter to us. Right? Don't create artificial barriers to the access that we have to God through Christ. Right? That is meant to be freeing to you personally. And, and it also leads right into the second warning for the week, which is not to stand in judgment over others. Legalism, I think, is kind of at like a far end of the spectrum. A little closer, maybe to the middle, is being judgmental, right? Because it's less overt. Um, in some ways, I worry less about legalism because legalism is, is out there. If people are saying sort of Jesus plus, usually that's, that's out there, that's known. Judgmentalism is in here, right? If you're judgmental, often that's... that's under the surface, that's in the heart. It's the, it's the ways that we uh, judge one another that are silent. But given what I've said thus far about conscience and how it's unique, uh, 
to you, how it changes over time, hopefully it's clear that your sense of right and wrong doesn't allow you to stand in judgment over others. I wonder how many of you have ever seen a, another Christian's behavior or heard their opinion about something and thought something like this, thought, oh, hmm, that's strange. I, I, thought they were, I thought they were Christian. I wonder if, if any of you have ever had a thought like that. I'll admit it, I, I do. I have that, I have that thought. Actually, it just, um, it just happened. The, uh, <laughs> everybody who talked to me this morning is really nervous. <laughs> no, you know, it happens every, every year to the NCAA men's basketball championships. When I see people's brackets and they pick Duke University, I think, huh, <laughs> I thought they were Christian. <laughs> Sad. And then I pray for them. No, but, but seriously, I don't, I don't think what I'm saying is, is super far-fetched, right? For instance, let me give a couple like, real examples. You, no hands raised, please. Would it change what you thought of a fellow believer, or, or even, better yet, of a leader in our church, if you learned one of these things about them? If you learned that they have tattoos, would that change things? Would it change things if you learned that they celebrate Halloween? Or maybe, uh, particularly, you know, for the, for the uh, lay uh, leaders among us, if that occasionally they work on Sundays, would that change what you think about, about them and their Christianity, their own faith? What if you found out that they read Harry Potter books to their kids? Hmm. What if you found out that they send those kids to public school or to private school? What if you found out they listen to hip hop? What if you found out that they, I don't know, have a glass or two of wine with dinner before watching a Disney movie. Maybe even they dance. I know, these are, these are things, any of the things I listed, like they're sort of in jest, except that these, this is where the rubber meets the road sometimes, right? For those with a weak conscience, for those with an oversensitive conscience. And if that's you, if you're from a tradition like that, if you've internalized things like that, you need to hear what Paul says in verse 8. He puts it plainly. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. Right? The rule about abstaining from meat, abstaining from those things, does nothing to improve our standing before God. So long story short, and I'm somewhat so sorry for bearing the lead, but the Christians with the weak conscience are in the wrong on this. And those Christians do not have the right to stand in judgment over fellow believers who are also acting in good faith, but come to a different conclusion. Okay, one final note, though, to, to those of us with a weak conscience before I get to those with a strong conscience. If you have a weak or an oversensitive conscience, as it pertains to you personally, if you have prayed about a matter and you remain that convinced 
that something is wrong in the eyes of God, you should absolutely obey your conscience. Right? You should absolutely obey your conscience. Because to do otherwise, think about what it would mean. To do otherwise would be to intentionally act counter to what you believe is God's will. That is tantamount to sinning, right? So obey your conscience, but do so without judging and certainly do so without becoming legalistic. Now, I want to spend the rest of my time addressing those with strong faith. So if you zoned out for the first half of the sermon, or more than half if you're checking your clock, as someone with strong faith, if you assume that Paul's writings were not for you, now's the time to tune back in. Right? When it comes to the strong, Paul has specific instructions. Right? So he refers to this group as strong. These are the folks who felt the freedom to eat the meat. He talks about them in another way too. And you can see it back at the beginning of chapter 8. He writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. She puts them in... in well, we put them in sort of scare quotes in the, in the uh, version that we're reading. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but he's going to learn today. That last part was me, not Paul. He refers to this group as the ones who have knowledge. The, sp- the specific knowledge, and this is what the weak may be forgetting, is that there is but one God, one Lord, Jesus Christ, and that the food doesn't improve our standing, right? But the knowledge brings with it the first warning to the strong, and that first warning is don't be arrogant. Just as I warned the weak not to judge others for their lack of adherence to a strict code of conduct, the warning to the strong is not to be arrogant or proud on account of your own spiritual maturity, Paul says that knowledge puffs up. And, and, and I don't know about you, but that resonates with me. Right? Is there anything more insufferable than someone with a taste of expertise who wants to lord it over you? I mean, that's basically what Twitter is. Right? An entire digital universe d- devoted to weaponized, puffed-up knowledge. That is all to say that while the strong are objectively taking the better position, if they're arrogant, if they fail to evidence love towards their fellow brothers and sisters, it's a fail. It's a a colossal miss, right? Knowledge is great and should be used as a vehicle for helping others, not for advancing oneself, not for puffing up. So we've got to make sure that our knowledge is adorned with humility, that it's accompanied by love. How do we use that knowledge to benefit someone else, not to puff up ourselves? So don't be arrogant. That's the first warning. The second warning to strong Christians is not to let a right of yours become a stumbling block to weak brothers and sisters that you're in fellowship with. Right? This is the, the, the flip side of you know, that final advice that I gave for the weak that if their conscience um, uh, has convinced them of something, they shouldn't act against the conscience. This is sort of the flip side about that. Because um, the last thing that the strong should do 
is to sin against your brother by wounding their already weak conscience. Right? If the weak one is having this internal struggle and sees the strong flaunting his or her freedom, the weak might be lured into doing the same thing. Right. So the strong are, are told, hey, remember, you've got a responsibility to your weak brother. And this is where we do well to remember that the God, the God of the Bible likes to do things that are not particularly expected. And this is an example of this. Paul doesn't say, hey, weak conscience, oversensitive Christians, and just get with the program. Right? Get with the program, pick up a kebab, start eating it, enjoy, and act like a strong uh, conscience you know, strong faith Christian ASAP, just get with the program. No, instead, he places the burden on the strong and he effectively tells them to give up their freedoms. If you're, if you're visiting with us today and you're not a Christian or maybe you're considering Christianity, I want you to pay particular attention to this part because you may see Christian family members or friends and their lives may may seem like they're bound up by lots of rules and restrictions. But I want you to consider this. Consider that what you see that may appear to be a constrained life, it may in fact be someone who cares so much about protecting others that they give up their own freedoms. And giving up freedom is so countercultural to us. It's downright, dare I say, un-American. And I mean, I, I am all for liberty. But in our country, I mean, sometimes we, we do things just because we can do them. Don't we? I mean, that's, that's American. I was at the Carolina Classic Fair once in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And I had a double bacon cheeseburger where the buns were swapped out for Krispy Kreme donuts. You know why I had that? Freedom. <laughs> also, do not recommend. <laughs> speaking, of th uh, speaking of things that we do just because we can in our country, uh, this summer, now with a total series production cost of 1.5 billion, with a B, billion dollars, the 10th episode of Fast and Furious is coming out. 10 episodes, y'all. That's three more than the Chronicles of Narnia. Why? Freedom. Also, do not recommend. Given the, the tragedies uh, that our national communities experienced just a few weeks ago, I was speaking to a friend from overseas, and she told me that she thinks there's a gun fetish in our country. And she might be right. I don't know. But I do know that there's a freedom fetish. Giving up your right to do something 
in the United States of America is not thought of as star-spangled awesome. But let me tell you something, it is Christian. Specifically, foregoing our freedom is what strong Christians are instructed to do if exercising our freedom risks causing another Christian to sin. That's what it means to not be a stumbling block, tripping up another person. I know Christians who, prior to coming to faith in Jesus, spent a lot of time, you know, partying, drinking, etc. For them, the turn towards the cross was also a turn away from a certain lifestyle. Their conscience is especially sensitive to behaviors that they associate with a life without Christ. And in some cases, they're right. In some cases, they, they may be wrong. But it would be a sin against these friends if I persisted in like trying to coax them to participate just so that I can show them how right I am about Christian freedom. Right? And, and this is where Paul shows off his theological kind of jujitsu skills. Right? He takes an argument that the strong want to use, namely, what we eat or drink doesn't matter to God, so quit making a big deal about it. That's where he takes it and he flips it around and he turns the argument against them and he says, you're right. And since it doesn't matter, why not voluntarily abstain from it if it could keep you from harming your brother or sister? If you recognize, friends, that doing something could lead a fellow believer astray, you need to think long and hard before continuing down that course. Much better to show restraint at the outset. And if you're having a hard time acquiescing, maybe stop thinking about your lost freedoms, your lost liberty, and think about the freedom you have in Christ precisely because Christ gave up his own freedom. Right? It's right there in another one of Paul's letters in Philippians 2. Verse 5, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you still want to complain about not going to that party or watching that movie or having that drink? Well, verse 6 continues, have this mind among you, yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You strong ones, remember what Jesus gave up for you. What wouldn't you give up to help a brother or sister? So how do we avoid all the things that I just warned against, both the, for the weak conscience and for those with knowledge, for those with a strong conscience. I know that no one, no one wants to, to revisit, you know, the height of the COVID pandemic, say 2020, kind of late 2020, 2021. But that time really brought this chapter into stark relief for me, at least. I mean, how many relationships were broken and churches decimated, really, during COVID because people on both sides thought they were right. I wonder which person you were. 
and as a church leader, I got to say, it's hard to revisit this because the Bible doesn't give a whole lot of guidance about immunology and how to interpret public health statistics. And I know that for many of you, your positions about whether it was vaccines or masks or in-person attendance or, or virtual or whatever, that those had real spiritual significance. I'd be hard-pressed to categorize anybody as weak or strong on these issues, honestly. But I will say, I think there are these two principles that I want to just share and close with. I think they served us really well at Edgefield during that time. This is not to say that I personally, that we as the elders or even fellow attendees got everything right. But in looking back and looking at other communities of Christians, I was really thankful, I am really thankful for how our church worked through disagreement. Here are two principles I think that we try to, to embody. And I'll close with these. The first principle is that when you disagree, pursue discernment together. Don't try to crowdsource your conscience. Right? After all, we are trying to stay oriented towards God's standards. So, together, let's use the resources that he's given, namely the Bible, right? I know it's not going to tell us exactly what we want to hear about um, a, a specific contemporary issue, but it will remind us of things that are good and true, and it reminds us of God's faithfulness to his people who have never had all the answers. So, let's start that together discernment together through the Bible. The second principle is to ensure that love abounds. Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So let's be builders. Love means adhering to a rule for yourself and genuinely believing it's the right thing to do, all while extending grace to someone else who feels the freedom to not follow the same rule. Love means Forgoing the right to behave a certain way because abstaining from it will benefit another Christian's faith. That's love. And, and where there's need, uh, this is where rather we, uh, we have the need to remind ourselves, especially in the American context where liberty and freedom abound, that Jesus gave up his heavenly throne put on flesh, took on the weight of our sin, all because of love. The second chapter of this letter, which we've covered a few months ago, it says that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That's encouraging. I hope that's encouraging to you because it means that you don't just have to dig deep and suffer through and kind of white knuckle through every conflict. If you are in Christ, you have his spirit to help you love others, even and especially when you disagree with them. The characteristics of the strong, which are caring about what God cares about, knowing what's true about him, loving those who he loves, those are the things that we're aiming for. Yeah. So let's pray that when conflict arises, and it will, that ultimately love will abound. We pray with me now. Father God, we thank you 
that if we are in you, we no longer have the spirit of this world, but your spirit. And by your spirit, we pray that you would give us the strength and grace to love one another. We pray that our own conscience would align more closely with your will, not for our glory, Lord, but for your glory, that you might be known in the world as the one God, the one Father. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love our fellow believers here at Edgefield and around the world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.